Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hello and welcome to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined today by Gene Allen. Hey. And Mohini. Hello. Today we're going to be talking about the fight for a $15 minimum wage, which is a movement that has been going on now for eight years and now seems to be on the verge of possibly maybe getting federal success in their goal of raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour. Um, currently, Democrats in Congress, um, the House has passed a version of COVID relief that includes a $15 minimum wage. The question right now is whether that can pass the Senate. And it's an open question at this point. Some are not optimistic about that. But what can the two of you say about like the de- ongoing debates about whether this is good or not? You know, why sh- why does this matter? I can take this, um, or I can start off. Um, I the thing that really gave me the politics that I have now because I was I was like an activist in college, but I didn't really have any kind of guiding principles. And the thing that really drove me to be the person that I am today is that I was in graduate school and I was working in a minimum wage job or a near minimum wage job. It was like eight an hour in North Virginia. And um, the fight for 15 was just starting. And, you know, I was dealing with all of the these ideas of like, well, it's mostly teenagers and don't even really worry about it. And it's going to destroy our economy if we give poor people much money, you know, that kind of stuff. And that kind of made me realize like, oh, all of this has nothing to do with reality. Um, and I think we're going to get more about like the sociological and uh, political science aspect of this later. But that was the thing that really exposed me to. Uh, the idea of working class politics just made me the kind of person that I am today. Yeah, so a lot of what brought me into the fight for 15 in a union was being a tipped restaurant worker for a lot of my adult working life. So I, you know, started out working in minimum wage food service and then started working for a tipped minimum wage in restaurants and bars as like a server and bartender. And despite working, you know, anywhere from 40 to sometimes 50, 60 hour weeks um, was still really struggling to make basic ends meet, right? Like I still needed food stamps. I still needed heat for my RG&E bills. Um, and it was such a hustle and it was such a struggle. And then the hours actually weren't even reliable either. So a lot of the times I was working super hard, super long hours, and then suddenly they would only schedule you for 20 to 30 hours. And now you're not able to pay your bills, but for a different reason. (laughs) That's really what brought me to the fight for 15 uh, through Metro Justice. So when I first started organizing for it, I was coming in as a worker volunteer leader until, you know, after about a year, um, I started organizing like as a, as a staff organizer with Metro Justice as well and worked with workers all across Rochester for, for the fight and, you asked why it was important, and it's important for a lot of reasons. I think what we're, especially what we're seeing now with COVID, is that capitalism not only breeds and leads to crisis, but it makes crisis worse. So, what happens when you have an economic system in which power is organized in the hands of a few because they're allowed to own, you know, all the resources that we need to make goods and services to survive, owning those resources is what gives them power. And then if they play by the rules of capitalism, they use those resources not to provide for human need. They use those resources to create as much wealth as possible for themselves and in profit, right? Mm -hmm. So what you have is a country that's dying of poverty, of being unable to afford basic needs like healthcare or food or heat and electricity or housing. And a 
big part of that crisis is that you have people going to work that are not actually getting paid their fair share for the wealth that they're producing. They're paid nothing so that capitalists, you know, business owners can make millions, if not billions of dollars in profit. And so, of course, when you have a crisis like COVID hit, we already had a crisis of poverty and death. And now you have a pandemic that's making it all worse because now these workers can't even go to work or they're being forced to go to work <laughs> so that their bosses can continue making money. So this is important because I don't think you can address poverty and death and resiliency in times of crisis like COVID without understanding that, hey, workers actually need to make the fair share of the wealth that they produce. And a way you can start with that is by actually paying them more. And $15 an hour is a place to start. Uh, They deserve a lot more than that, um, but it's certainly a place to start. Yeah, I, I think that's all really well put. Um, for, for my part, I've been making minimum wage or slightly above it for the last five years now. Um, when I started out working where I am now, which happens to be a nursing home, I was making, I think, nine an hour, maybe even eight seventy five. And in the time since, and this is in part because of the fight for 15 and what they've uh, been able to accomplish here in New York, you know, that has risen to um, the minimum wage is now twelve fifty. I make twelve seventy. So, still not fifteen dollars an hour, but I'm getting paid a lot more than I was when I started. And and you talked about the ways COVID has sort of exposed these deeper problems in our society, and talked about the people who still have to go to work during this pandemic, and you know, almost feeling like the lucky ones in a way because you know I still have a job. I still have to go to work. Nursing homes don't close down, uh, can't close down. And and something that struck me since the time I started there is like, you know, I, I work in the kitchen and th- there's this common argument about the minimum wage going up that like, if you pay these people $15 an hour, then it's not really worth it to do some other job that currently pays more than these jobs. Uh, EMTs are often one of the cited ones. And and sort of my reaction to that is like, I don't want to work this job. This job sucks. Like it's not pleasant to do. I don't think you're going to have like a spate of people rushing to fast food jobs. If you raise the wage for those jobs to $15 an hour, you're just going to make the people doing those jobs a little less miserable in the process. Yeah. And it's something that because I was a bank teller up until right before uh, the pandemic. And, you know, I'm thinking about getting back into food service partially because it's an easy way to get vaccinated comparatively to just waiting. Isn't Um, that wild? (laughs) It's so cool. But like I, I have a bunch of friends who are still food service workers. And it's something that I've thought about more and more, which is that the message, whatever whatever ethos existed before for a lot of, I guess, what you would call centrists um, or social liberals or whatever, what it feels like nowadays is largely a a very smart sounding justification for why it's okay that people are suffering. You know, I have a friend who uh, had mental health problems in her late teens, early 20s, wasn't able to get through college and works and is really good as a barista and is never going to get more than 13, 14 an hour without minimum wage increases, which is like left her stuck in that situation of working in her parents' house. And there's a certain point where it's like, so are we just fine with people living like the way that Mohini described of not being able to make ends meet despite working as much as you can? Is that in profitable businesses? In profitable businesses that gentrify and make it more expensive to live in the neighborhoods that they exist. Are we okay with that being these people's lives in perpetuity? And that's like, I guess we are. I guess some people are. Well, they're okay with it and or they think it's justified or that it's fair in some twisted way. Um, and I think what capitalism and sort of, you know, the ruling class that, you know, controls so much of the media and is able to control so much of the narrative and then also has like direct power over people's lives because they're their bosses. What they do a really good 
like great job of putting forward our like false dichotomies that turn people against each other. So like Ryan, when you were saying, you know, one of the arguments that's come up as well, why would someone want to do like an important job like an EMT if they could make more money working in fast food? First of all, they're both important. Um, you know, food service wouldn't be a profitable industry if there wasn't a need or a demand for it. But the other question is, why are we talking about these things as if they're opposed to each other? Like everybody needs to be making more. Like if you are working in an industry that can make that much money, in most cases, it means it's valuable. It's doing something valuable for society. And if you're going to be a worker in an industry that's valuable to society, you should be making more, period. It doesn't matter if you're an EMT or if you work in the kitchen of a nursing home. And really what it should point out is, oh, we all clearly need to band together and like fight for higher wages and better benefits in all of our workplaces because we're the ones doing the work and we deserve you know, our fair share because of that. There's another really interesting false dichotomy that like COVID has sort of brought along where people have been told that, well, you can either choose to not get COVID and stay safe from the disease, or you can choose the economy functioning. And, you know, we all know that that's a false choice. It doesn't have to work that way. Well, it's, it's, you know, it's that funny thing of like people talk about, you know, oh God, this is the reference that I'm coming up with right now. But there's that line at the beginning of uh, most Def's album, Black on Both Sides, where he's talking about how people are always asking him what's going on with hip hop. And he says, people talk about hip hop like it's a giant in the hillsides, like completely disconnected from any of the people who are making it. And it feels the same way that we talk about the economy, where it's like, oh, well, the economy would be mad. Like it's a dragon that lives in a mountain, as opposed to as opposed to like the collective creation of like what all of us do. It's not this mythical thing. (laughs) I'm just impressed by the distance you went for that metaphor. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm sorry. No, it's fine. Um, Something that sort of occurred to me as as both of you were talking is that there's this like whole aspect of our media and our sort of uh, pop culture that seems to be aimed at like engendering shame in the people who work these jobs and the idea that that shame will be enough to propel them out of them. Um, like this whole idea that you're not supposed to be doing these jobs past a certain age, even as increasingly that's not what these jobs are look like. Something like half of the minimum wage workers in this country are over the age of 25 now. Most of the people I worked with in food service were supporting families. They were, they were much older than I was. Right. But it's like, it's not enough that these jobs be paid little and that the conditions you know, overwhelmingly are just unpleasant. There also has to be this societal level of stigma and shame about them. Like it's the worst thing in the world to be a waitress. It's it's just, it's really frustrating to uh, see that. And like when once you see that, oh, those jokes are about me. You know, there's, it's hard to rationalize that in my head. I don't, I don't know if either two of you have thoughts on that. Yeah, I think part of what it it's a it's a strange feedback loop, right? Where servers and waitresses and like folks in food service are treated like garbage and they're told well like you're not being paid enough or you're not treated well because this job isn't valuable because you you know didn't get an education or decide to develop a more valuable skill so that's why you're so that's why you're being paid nothing that's why you have terrible working conditions but at the same time the fact that they're paid nothing and treated like garbage also reinforces the narrative that this is a shit job. Um, so it's this very, very like toxic, interesting feedback loop where it's just like you're told it's a job so that you can justify paying it less. And then people are OK with like and the fact that it's paid less sort of reinforces this idea. Well, of course, it's a job because look how it's compensated. I'm just going to note and not a problem. I can edit this out. We are on the radio, not live, but, you know. Oh, okay. Yeah. (laughs) There are rules about that sort of thing. You mentioned earlier working as a waitress and receiving the tip minimum wage, which is even lower than like the federal minimum wage of $7.25 an hour. It's, what is it, like $2.30 something? It's $3.15 an hour federally, I believe. 
Yeah. And like as part of like fight for 15, there's been more examination of whether this thing should even exist. And overwhelmingly, the answer has been no, it's, you know, really bad to make people rely on um, tips and like sort of the generosity of the people they're dealing with, because that leaves them vulnerable to all sorts of small and large exploitations. Um, I I know in DC, there was um, a city referendum basically to get rid of the tip minimum wage, which passed and then was undone by city council there. These are connected issues. Like no, nobody should be making that little an hour, even if in theory there are rules requiring them to be paid the minimum wage, but enforcement is another matter entirely. Just getting back to sort of the present state of things. Um, one of the sort of uh, sticking points in Congress is this idea of whether minimum wage increase can get through the Senate. And specifically, it's um, Joe Manchin in West Virginia and Kristen Cinema of Arizona, the two Democratic sen- senators who seem to have a problem with passing a $15 minimum wage through the Senate. Um, this was something that Joe Biden campaigned on. Um, it was part of his platform, one of the rare areas where Biden's uh, platform and what activists are calling for were aligned was a $15 minimum wage. And here it seems like, you know, he's, uh, there was a story in Politico this week about him privately telling governors that he doesn't think it's going to happen. You know, he doesn't think it can get through even a democratic controlled Senate. So like, that's frustrating to see, you know, everybody was told to vote in Georgia and across the country for Democrats and to see that, even with this power, they can't get done something that was part of their platform. Right. And I think what that speaks to is, you know, a commentary on where power actually comes from, right? Like you can have whoever in office, if the industry is still ultimately controlled by shareholders and CEOs, and they're the ones that own the industries, and they're the ones that have, you know, through directly controlling those industries and the power that comes from that, and then putting their money in politics as well. Of course, like we are not going to win a $15 minimum wage increase federally, unless there are masses of very well organized workers that are able to build that sort of dual power between workers and bosses where workers are like, wait a minute, sure, you own the industry, but this industry doesn't run unless we come to work. So if we are organized and can use the power that we have from being the ones that actually make this industry run, then there's a whole, you know, bunch of action, you know, from, uh, slowing down work to straight up strikes to all sorts of ways they can exercise, you know, material power uh, to really force um, the $15 minimum wage increase. And I think that's why it's ultimately like, this issue is so much bigger than a federal minimum wage increase law, right? It's absolutely necessary. Like we absolutely need to raise the wage 100%. It also needs to be tied to inflation which I'm not sure they're they're going to do. That's one thing they didn't do in New York State when we won the fight for 15. Um, and that's something that folks are still fighting for. But ultimately, even if it is tied to inflation, we can't stop there because this is fundamentally a question of power and how who has power impacts livelihoods. Um, so really the long game here and the ultimate answer here is that we need minimum wage industries, we need fast food, we need food service to actually have strong, organized, militant, grassroots worker unions that can exercise the power that allows them to have a say in all sorts of decisions, not just their wages, but their benefits, their working conditions, their hours, all of that. Darn straight, you know, because we can't curse on the radio. (laughs) Damn is acceptable by FCC rules. Wow. Excellent. Damn. You talked about where power lies, and it's sort of annoying to realize that right now the answer to that question seems to be one old guy from West Virginia. Um, it's just the nature of how our government is set up, you know, the undemocratic nature of the Senate that, like, there's these choke points that are come from states that are significantly more conservative even than, like, the average uh, just this past November, Florida voted to increase their minimum wage to $15 an hour. 
um, over a period of years. But like Florida is a state that voted for Trump twice and they overwhelmingly passed this. So it's not like minimum wage increase isn't popular in this country. We just have a a government that um, for a variety of reasons doesn't translate the public will into actual action. Well, I think that's because we don't actually have a democracy. And I think that's the problem with folks on the left and folks in movements that think winning and think victory and think that change is a fight of public opinion. It isn't. Public opinion only matters if you actually have a democracy, which we don't. Um, And the reason why we don't actually have a democracy is because power, the control over materials and, you know, the means of production and like the resources people need to survive isn't actually organized democratically. So if power isn't organized democratically, how could you possibly have a government in a state that's meant to represent that system that is democratic? So that's why you see things where, okay, this, uh, you know, a $15 minimum wage is actually immensely popular. So why aren't politicians following suit? It's because opinion isn't power. Um, So again, like the way this is actually going to change is if you organize workers and industries that are capable of actually on the ground, materially shifting that power back to them. And that's what it's going to take. In the meantime, does it help that people like are finally coming around to this and think that, you know, a higher minimum wage is what's necessary and it's what workers deserve um, and have deserved for a long time? Of course, that shift in public opinion makes organizing much, much, much easier and is the result of organizing, right? Um, But at the end of the day, like there's no way out of this. There's no way to that victory than to organize. and that's why I think some of those some of those dynamics like what you're talking about in Florida are happening. Yeah, the way that I've been I've been putting it is we get five, maybe 10 minutes of democracy a year. And then the people we elect go back to talking to lobbyists. And then we go back to our jobs, which are not democratically run in the slightest. Totally. Yeah, I, I think that's really well put. Um, we're going to take a little break here, and then we're going to come back and talk a bit more about that organizing you talked about and some of the efforts Fight for 15 has done and some of the change they've been able to win through those efforts. We'll be back. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester. If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, still joined by Gene Allen. Hello. Hello. And Mohini. We talked in the first segment about the current state of the minimum wage struggle in this country and the push to raise it to $15 an hour. And Mohini, you talked a lot about the importance of organizing in regards to something like this. And I was wondering if you could touch on just what that organization has looked like, because before Fight for 15 came around in 2012, I think it began, you know, there wasn't a lot of organizing being done in this sphere among fast food workers. And it was really um, refreshing and almost jarring to see that happen at the time. Yeah, it was It was really inspiring. I was really glad um, to see that happening because, you know, food service is one of the largest industries in the U.S. And it's also one of the largest sources of poverty. You know, like it, like the workers are just paid so little, um, despite being a part of one of the largest, most profitable industries in the country. So the way that the Fight for 15 actually started was that it came directly from workers. Um, Back in 2012, there were over 100 fast food workers in New York City that walked off their jobs and went on strike for higher wages, for better working conditions, and the right to form a union, um, you know, without retaliation from from their bosses. And from that, um, eventually a bunch of unions came together and fast food workers, you know, got together with primarily SCIU, the Service Employees International Union. And that's what really birthed like an organized, resourced, 
movement that became the fight for 15 in a union. So that's how that started. And from there, the fight just started to spread all over the country. And Metro Justice was actually the organization that really anchored the fight for 15 in a union in upstate New York. You talked a lot about this in the last segment about how this is all about power. And if you're sort of fighting these battles on your own, you just don't have any power. Like there's not a lot a fast food worker can do on their own to change the conditions because, you know, famously, these are jobs that there's a large pool of people who who McDonald's can hire to replace you if you, you know, threaten to set out on your own, if you demand better. And, and that leverage is something that they've used for decades now to keep conditions where they are. Absolutely. One worker walks off the job, they get fired. Mm-hmm. Uh, nearly all the workers in a shop work off the job, you have a strike. Um, and you have a strike that can win something. Um, and actually makes the bosses use money, right? Because it's capitalism. The only language it understands is money. Our power is 100% in numbers and that is what it really means to organize, right? Like organizing is to come together and build organization of everyday people. That's how you're able to actually bring together the power that you have in numbers and actually use it. And the Fight for 15, honestly, um, is such a strategically significant fight for fast food workers in particular to wage. And that's because just like you were saying, Ryan, where... A lot of what bosses will threaten workers with is like, oh, you want something better? Okay, cool. You can leave because we've got hundreds of thousands of people that are willing to take your place, right? Because capitalism has like manufactured this like desperation of people that are looking for whatever job they can because it's so, so hard to even find a job in the first place um, that can help you pay your bills. So there's that. There's also when you have sort of the bottom of the barrel, so to speak, right, which is where fast food has been for a long time, it actually impacts standards of other industries. Because then let's say you're, you know, an EMT, for example, let's say, because that's the one that always seems to come up. Let, let's say you're an EMT and you want better working conditions. And especially if you're doing this individually, well, the first thing you get told is like, well, you're lucky to have this job to even begin with. If you don't like it here, you could always go work in fast food where it's a lot worse. But right. if you but if you increase the conditions within fast food, if you if you build more power and you make better the working conditions of the bottom of the barrel, then there's no other, there's no other industry to point to to be able to say, "Well, you could always have it worse there." Because that doesn't exist anymore. So fast food, because it's the bottom of the barrel and because it's massive, if you improve things in fast food, it has a cross-industry effect on working conditions, which is what makes the Fight for 15 so valuable and so powerful. Well, and and even if you look back to, you know, there's this, I think that everybody who says that food service is not a real job will look to quote unquote real working class jobs like being a miner or being like a right. steel worker. Those weren't well paid. Totally. They fought for it. They, Yeah. They had to perpetually fight for it. Like they had children doing a lot of the roles of um, sorting through coal and stuff like that. And they were paying children, you know, pennies on the, on the hour. And they were able to do that not because of some inherent nature of, you know, swinging a pickaxe, but because in the United States at least and throughout the much of the Western world, these people were not organized. And in the United States, especially, you had a perpetual, you know, glut of people who are coming in, which made it easier to have a job where people were getting killed perpetually by the job that they had, and made it harder to organize, but people still organized the mines and the steelworks and textile works, etc. There's nothing that says that the same thing can't be done for food service or for retail. I think there's um, this sort of romanticization that happens about these old jobs, these uh, sort of family supporting jobs on like an assembly line in the 50s, you know, this nostalgia for that. Uh, time period, which, you know, was deeply flawed in a lot of real ways. And, you know, we can't and should not go back to it. But 
the only thing that separates those jobs from the ones now is organization, is unionization. You know, those jobs had a union. There's nothing special about working at an auto plant that separates it from working at a fast food restaurant. It's just a matter of having the power to demand better from your bosses. Um, you know, Mohini, you talked about the nature of food service, and it strikes me that this is something that impacts like not just like the front of store people at McDonald's, but all throughout that industry. It's, you know, people picking crops in California. It's people in the meatpacking industry. These are all low paid jobs. They are jobs disproportionately done by immigrants who are exploited in ways that are um, quote unquote legal and uh, not legal. We treat the people who provide us with the food we eat probably the worst out of any people in society as far as their working conditions. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. And I mean, the amazing thing that happened with the five for 15 and like food service was that you had all these other professions, you know, getting inspired and being like, wait a minute, if they can do it and they deserve 15, which they do, then like we do too. And it caused a sort of spark and organization of a variety of minimum wage industries, you know, from like car washes even too, right? So nurses and EMTs, and there were so many other industries that were like, if they can fight and win, so can we. And that's what we have to do. And then when it comes to farm workers, I mean, that's a, that's a whole other beast where I absolutely agree with you. Like I don't, there's very few workers that we treat worse than the workers that are growing and producing our food, mostly because they're immigrants and many of them are undocumented. People will point to, you know, quote unquote, like socialist states and are like, oh, but they had like forced labor camps and et cetera, et cetera. And I'm just like, we have those here in the US too under capitalism. They're just prisons and farms instead where you have Black folks in prison working for next to nothing. And then you have either undocumented or documented immigrants as farm workers working long hours with next to no rights and for next to no money. And what we're seeing is that this was something that was long overdue that needs to go far beyond fast food. Yeah. You, t- you talk about ripple effects. There was a recent study um, that found that increases to the minimum wage actually help those other low wage workers whose um, who might currently be making more than the minimum wage or slightly above $15 an hour, it helps them win pay raises of their own because it's actually that common argument of why wouldn't they just go work in fast food restaurants, but in reverse, because they point to these increases in pay and say, okay, make me stay here. You know, that becomes leverage for them to use against mm-hmm. their bosses and, it's not something that um, actually results in them leaving those jobs for like the paradise of, you know, flipping burgers. Yeah. The, when I was a bank teller, I started off making roughly $12 an hour. And the one and only time that I started getting pay increases was when the McDonald's that was in the same plaza as I, you know, got that increase to $12 an hour. And then I got up to 14 with like increases go. going precisely to when the minimum wage would be increased each year. Everybody benefits from something like this. Everybody who isn't just trying to have like a high turnover place of employment that is hell for people that you anytime that someone asks for something better, you just point at a McDonald's and say, well, then go work there. And, and there's something about these arguments that um, – well, there's a lot about these arguments that rubs me the wrong way. But there's this – almost this attitude of like, you know, what is a wage? You know, is it money so that you can make ends meet and pay your bills and put food on the table? Or is it about feeling superior to those making less than you? There's this negative solidarity that you see sometimes from people who are in other low paid industries, you know, worried about what happens to them if suddenly McDonald's has to pay their workers $15 an hour. And it's like, that doesn't diminish you at all, unless for whatever reason you're treating this as a competition, which it really doesn't have to be. Yeah, I think that it very much is that 
we have this mental uh, horrific sickness that uh, is happening right now where rather than trying to make anything better, we're just happy that someone who we find deserving is doing worse than us. And deserving can mean any number of things, can have any number of qualities. But I think that that is why we've stuck to this idea of minimum wage workers and low wage workers being primarily teenagers, as that has increasingly been the kind of thing that you just have to pay the slightest amount of attention to realize is fake. And and it's not just the minimum wage debate. It's like arguments about student debt. There's, you know, the, the cynical ploy of, well, if those people get their debt canceled, you know, I paid all of mine, you know, how should I feel? It's like, why, why should you care? Um, but it's that, that attitude is pervasive throughout our society. There's like a secondary economy of status and prestige that people want to exist alongside the economy of what people are paid so that they can maintain their um, real or imagined sense of superiority over those doing less off than them. None of it is real, but it nevertheless has real impacts on the debates that shape to one extent or another uh, how our society operates. It goes even deeper than that, right? Because, okay, if it's about this sort of clinging on to a sense of superiority that comes from like a higher wage or, or whatever, well, what else do you have to cling to if you don't have the political understanding and involvement and experience to understand and know how to build an alternative, right? So what it also starts to speak to is that to really see the absurdity of the counter arguments, to really understand how like fake all these narratives are that like, you know, make us believe that all minimum wage workers are probably just teenagers or that like this level of exploitation is justified in some way. If you start to question that, it's worldview shattering. It fundamentally questions and turns on its head like what people are made to believe about how society works, what is fair, what isn't. That's deeply rattling for folks, especially like it also means that the answer is a harder answer than I think most people are willing to accept, right? So if the answer is that this exploitation is just justified and that low-wage workers make low wages because they're undeserving or they're lazy and they just didn't like, you know, do the work to get a better job, then it's like, okay, the answer is you just work hard and you get an education and you do all the things right and you'll be fine. But if you actually understand the truth that it's like, no, this is systemic and it's not that those jobs aren't valuable, it's just that you have capitalists, you know, CEOs and shareholders that need to exploit people and are going to exploit anyone and everyone they can to make their wealth. Now what you're up against is actually I could work, I could do everything right, like quote unquote right by society standards and still not make it. Mm-hmm. And the only thing I could do to change that is to get together with my community and fight and like put my material security, my physical security, my mental security on the line to go up against multi-billion dollar industries of people that have so much power. And I think people are very hesitant to sort of accept that reality because it means they'll have to fight. And I think a lot of people aren't ready for that and they don't want the guilt of like knowing like, oh, I know the answer is to fight now and I don't know if I can. And I don't know if I'm ready for that. Well, and I think that for another segment, I think it is that they don't want to break this just world idea that they have about totally. it. Because if the world that they live in is unjust and they're doing okay, then what does that say about them? I remember a conversation that I had with my, uh, let's just say a relative, I'm not going to say it. But uh, about, again, the the minimum wage for prison labor, about mm-hmm. how people will be getting, you know, $10 a day for doing work um, that we're profiting off of uh, people's immiseration. And she said, well, what else are they going to do? And it's like, at this point, if we're okay with profiting off them, if what else are they going to do? And I said therapy, and she was like, oh, yeah, sure. And not punish them? 
Well, then it, again, at this point, if it's just about punishment, if it's if we're not trying to you know make people's lives better, make people less harmful, um, if we've given up on that, then you know why not just uh, kill everybody who has to do a prison sentence? It's almost impossible to like break through that idea of not just that prison, you know, this idea of prison as punishment, but also of low wage labor as punishment. Right. As this idea of, well, you did something wrong. You went off the golden path of life that involves you getting some kind of uh, nice, nicely paid office job that doesn't exist anymore. And if you don't do that, then you deserve what you get. Right, because if you're able to believe that everything is fair, then you're able to go on saying, well, everything is fair, so nothing needs to change and it's okay. If you start to understand that, no, this is deeply unfair and deeply exploitative, now the answer is, oh, you have to fight for something and change it. And that's a much harder answer than just going along as if you know everything is fine and living your life as you will. I think conversely, there are also people who come to that realization and then just sort of become nihilist about it. They say, well, you know, life isn't fair. There's nothing I can do. You know, they just accept it that, you know, things aren't just, but don't see any way to change that. And I think that can be just as harmful in ways as like continuing to believe that, no, everything is fine. Right. And that's the and that's the job of organizers, right? Like all of us, you know, in our lives that are politically on the left that want to organize, like we have to reach those people and bring them in and politicize them and activate them. Um and I think that's one of the major projects, you know, ahead for, you know, the the so-called left is that we need to organize people and we need to organize people at a scale that we have to like dare to think is possible and is like beyond what we, any of us could imagine, but like have to do anyway. Yeah. And, and I think that's like a real success of fight for 15, which um, we can credit with, you know, minimum wage increases in a number of States. Now, New York, uh, New York city is now at $15 an hour, Seattle, um, Florida, as I mentioned earlier is slowly totally. going to get there. But also another success is that they organize people who traditionally have been unorganized in this country, fast food workers who are, you know, these jobs are often viewed as stepping stones to something else. People aren't going to stick around long, so they aren't going to put in the effort to organize them. And yet Fight for 15 managed to do that, you know, to an extent that this country at least hasn't seen before. And I think those are people who you know, otherwise could fall into that trap of feeling, well, there's nothing I can do about these circumstances. You know, I may not deserve what I'm getting now, but what am I going to do about it? I, I think there's something to be celebrated in reaching those people and organizing them towards real change. Absolutely. We'll, we'll wrap up this segment. And when we come back, we'll Try to look forward, see, you know, what what happens next for this movement that Fight for 15 has created and what still needs to be done. We'll be back. You're listening to Punching Out on Wayo 104.3. You can subscribe to the show or listen to past episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and other podcast apps. We are also on Facebook and Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Now back to the show. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, still joined by Gene Allen. Hey, yeah. And Mohini. Hey there. We've talked for 45 minutes or so now about um, minimum wage and the various uh, psychological explanations people have come up with for uh, justifying their positions on one side of the argument or another. We are on the side that it should go up, that it's good for people to get paid more. Surprise, surprise. We want to wrap up this uh, episode talking about where Fight for 15 goes from here to some extent. Um, you know, if $15 minimum wage were to pass Congress, that would not solve all of the problems that Fight for 15 is concerned with. And one area in particular is um, the gig, gig economy, which is a frequent theme here on Punching Out. Uh, these are people who, you know, 
like a lot of industries are being paid less than the minimum wage when you do the math on it. And it seems like that is going to be the next site of struggle for this uh, low wage workers movement. You know, what would it take for Fight for 15 going forward to um, turn to address the needs of gig workers who, you know, don't have to be paid the minimum wage? You know, what would that look like in your view? Well, right now, I think, you know, some of that organizing is already starting with Uber drivers, with Instacart workers. You know, we saw a very inspiring Instacart worker strike, you know, a handful of months ago. So really what it looks like is that there are unions that really have to have vision when it comes to needing to organize a larger sector of workers and new sectors of workers to really sort of acknowledge that like what work means and who is doing work and what it means to have a job is fundamentally changing in this country with the gig economy. Um, It was already changing uh, with the shift to like office work, right? And now it's gained um, another significant shift into developing in, in seeing this like gig economy emerge, right? Where people do have employers in Instacart and Uber and Lyft um, in Grubhub, but are still for some reason, you know, treated as independent contractors, which is just straight up false. Um, they're not independent contractors. They are employees of these companies. They are told where to go, what to do, what hours to work. Like, you know, they're by all intents and measures, they are employees. Now, you know, the fight is organizing these workers um, and getting them to take collective mass action together, just like fast food workers came together to do the same and organize them into unions so that they can start exercising power to win those kinds of recognitions. Like we are not independent contractors, we are workers. And as such, we deserve certain rights from our bosses because we do have them. This argument that Instacart and Uber CEOs are making that like, no, no, Amazon too, Amazon delivery drivers, same thing. They're making that like, no, 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 they're not employees. They're independent contractors. They're choosing to work for us. Um, It's just a new manifestation of this narrative that like, oh, people choose their jobs or like to work is a choice. Um, And you can work wherever you want to work. And they are choosing to work as this with this company. And they have so much choice um, in terms of like how they work and where they work. And none of that is true. Um, When needing to work is what pays your rent, your food, your RG&E bill, um, your ability to live, you know, according to any standard, like, yeah, people need a job. People need to have a job. And the reason why they're turning to the gig economy is because bosses, I think, are purposefully, and you've seen this shift, like there has been a massive reduction in salaried full-time work. Temp work has really increased. What bosses have done is that they've gotten around um, the sort of full-time work laws where like, okay, if an employee works full time, then you owe them X, Y, and Z benefits. Um, and a lot of unions, um, will fight for like full-time work in certain hours and all the rights associated with that. So what bosses have done is like, well, what if we just eliminate the idea of the full-time job? Like, what if we just eliminate the idea of like a salaried stable job and try to shift people into this sort of model of a gig economy? Yeah, it's, we've talked about this before, but what almost all tech industry quote unquote innovations have been in the last couple of decades are really just ways of getting around what small labor protections we still have in this country. It's not like we, there's this joke that uh, people say of like the tech industry is constantly trying to reinvent public, uh, public transportation. You know, you'll have Elon Musk being like, what if you, there was a car that we could all drive on? And that's the and that's like stupid on its face. But the reason that billions of dollars get thrown in on it is what if there was a car that we could all drive on and also the person who was driving the car was not a union bus driver. Right. right. Exactly. And I'm struck by like the contrast in a couple recent news stories. Uh j- just this past week um in the UK 
uh, their Supreme Court determined that uh, Uber drivers and other gig economy workers are actually workers and not independent contractors. Totally. And as such are entitled to being paid a minimum hourly rate based on how much they're working. Um, and that's from the time they log on to the app. It's not just the time they spend driving to and from a destination. And conversely, here in um, the United States and California, Prop 22 passed this past fall. And there's an article in The Guardian uh, headline, I can't keep doing this. Gig workers say pay has fallen after California's Prop 22. You know, in the article, there's um, a quote here uh, from a man named Peter Young, who's a rideshare driver in Los Angeles. Quote, if you try to earn money just purely on the delivery fee, it comes out to about $5 an hour. A good day for me is maybe earning $100 before gas and expenses off of eight hours of work. And the contrast really couldn't be clearer between those paths. Either we treat these people um, with the basic dignity afforded to workers, which, as we've discussed earlier in this show, isn't a lot, but it's better than the life afforded to independent contractors. Um, And and so that's going to have to be um, part of broadening the struggle beyond just what the law says about the minimum wage is making sure that every worker gets the minimum wage. Right. And the reason why this gig economy is so dangerous is because they're not considered workers. So workers came together and fought and built unions in one policy. And then what the gig economy has done is that it's taken advantage of like our legal definition of like who is and isn't a worker. And it's taken advantage of this like, you know, independent contractor status And that's why, you know, it really just comes back to power, right? Because it's not enough to just like overturn Prop 22, let's say, because the moment you win anything in policy, the capitalist class is already thinking about the next workaround. And so as long as our fights are limited to winning policy and then disband, right, It's only a matter of time. In fact, they probably already have two, three workarounds planned, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, which is why when it comes to, as you were saying, Ryan, broadening, like we need to organize, we need to build unions, we need to build massive militant worker unions that are capable of, you know, really exercising power and control of their workplaces, because without that, every policy win is fragile. It's only a matter of time before the capitalist class finds a different way to strike back um, and find a workaround to what we want. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things when Fight for 15 started, it was Fight for 15 and a union. And that part hasn't gotten as much attention over the years since. You know, even if Congress were to pass a $15 federal minimum wage, that part is still, you know, not achieved. It's still something that needs to be fought for because- in the time since, in the eight years since Fight for 15 began, unionization hasn't really gone up any. You know, it's gone down, if anything. There still has to be an effort to create worker power so that workers can fend off these challenges from bosses in between the times when legislation is passed to uh, say that bosses can't do whatever new scheme they're doing. Exactly. And so I think. You know, if we want to end this episode on a positive note, that's something we try to do here on Punching Out, it's that Fight for 15 has shown that there are no workers who are unorganizable. You know, the fast food industry was thought to be, you know, a very difficult place to organize. And yet Fight for 15 managed to bring workers together to do fast food strikes, nationwide strikes, not just here in the US, but also in the UK and other countries, you know. To be able to pull that off is really something impressive, and it's something that we're going to have to build on if we want to um, see the world that we want to see in the future. Otherwise, um, things are probably going to be bad. Absolutely. There were a couple of things about COVID I wanted to revisit, too, about like the impact that is having on the desire and ability to organize low-wage workers. God, are we going to have to do... A second episode. <laughs> I, I am curious about this COVID point. Uh, Mahini, could you talk a bit more about that? 
Yeah, I think, you know, so earlier we were talking about how, you know, capitalism is really great at creating these false dichotomies. And and one of those was, you know, as COVID has come along, the capitalist class really wants us to believe that, like, well, you either can pick staying home and out of work and safe from COVID, or you can pick the economy, but you can't have both. The only reason a pandemic has to mean oh, the economy shutting down, people being unable to pay rent, people being unable um, to afford heat and electricity and like food and basic needs. Um, And that the only way to avert that in a pandemic is to risk people's lives and going back to work. The only reason that becomes necessary is if you have capitalist bosses, if you have owners that are still looking to make profit. That's the only reason that has to happen. Because if you were not living in a capitalist economy, what you would have is workers that for decades have been getting their fair share of the wealth that they've produced. So they already have more wealth. They already have more assets. They're already better off. And there would have been a much greater investment into emergency funds and relief funds. What One of the reasons why people are struggling so much now is because they never had the money to begin with. And now we won't tax the rich. We won't tax those that capitalist class in order to provide this necessary relief, which is absolutely absurd given that that wealth isn't theirs. They got that wealth off the backs of the work that working people did. So the wealth that they're now hoarding, that is the reason why so many of us can't pay rent, can't buy food, can't pay for heat and electricity, can't pay healthcare. Our government is still refusing to take that wealth back and bring it back to us. And the only reason for that is because, again, capitalism values profit for the few above everything else. We could pay people to stay home. We could take care of people. There's no reason why it means the economy has to shut down for us to be able to stay safe and stay home. We can just put that on pause. But in order to do that, you would have to say that, like, you don't need all this extra money and and profit for these people that, like, aren't doing anything productive for society, right? And it's also, also like, one of the just-so arguments for why it's okay that minimum wage, that restaurant workers don't get paid good wages is that right. it's not that dangerous and, uh, and and with uh it's like you know covid is now proven that uh restaurant owners don't give a crap about their employees health just as much as mine owners didn't give a crap about their employees health totally capitalism means that you will be sent to work to literally die in the name of profit for the few and something also that COVID has exposed is like there was all this talk at the beginning of the pandemic about essential workers, and those workers have always been essential. And those workers have also, as has been noted, been among the lowest paid in our society. Yes. There's not a value for the important and essential work that they do. We don't actually place a value on that. The work that keeps society running is so often ignored and underpaid. And if there's sort of any bright spot to come from this, it's that people are starting to recognize, you know, whose labor really matters, whose labor can we really not do without. And it creates a, you know, a terrain that's really, really ripe and set up for massive organizing drives. Like, organizing more workers in the meat industry, organizing more farm workers, organizing more healthcare workers, um, And this, it's really brought the country to a reckoning point of like, who is actually important? What is the economy and who actually makes it run? And what are the solutions like really available to us in times of crisis if we weren't so chained to this notion of making profit for a few people that like, don't do anything, don't contribute anything productive to society, right? Right. Um, I I feel like there's so much more you could say, but we are running up against the clock here. Um, For this week, I'm Ryan. I'm Gene Allen. And I'm Mohini. And this was Punching Out. You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. 
Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.